March 23, 1954, in the bustling seaside city of Bellingham, Washington, a pair of police officers walked through a parking lot. They were responding to a vandalism call from a nearby store. Two people reported damage to their cars. One officer collected statements from the witnesses. The other examined the vehicles. He leaned over the hood to get a closer look at the windshield giving a low whistle of surprise at the spider web of cracks and dints. None were bigger than a dime, but the damage seemed to be more than normal wear and tear. He strode over to the other car. Its windshield had the exact same marks, distinct scratches and blemishes all over. The owners hadn't seen or heard anything suspicious. When they entered the store, their cars were fine. When they exited, The windshields were covered in pox and dings. The officers promised they'd investigate. But once out of earshot, they laughed at the absurdity of the report. Neither one could understand making such a fuss over the tiny marks. But the cops' mood shifted when they got back to their squad car. Their windshield was now cracked with similar marks. They looked around, but nobody was nearby. Whatever or whoever had cracked the glass struck in silence and escaped without a trace. It was the first sign that the broken windshield report was more than an isolated incident. But soon it spread across hundreds of miles until it eventually became an epidemic. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on Seattle's broken windshield epidemic of 1954. Over the course of three weeks, cracks and divots appeared on thousands of cars' windshields with no clear culprit. This episode will discuss the rash of pittings, which spread from northern Washington to Seattle and as far east as Ohio. We'll then cover local politicians and law enforcement's attempts to solve the mystery and reassure the public, even as reports poured in. Next time, we'll try to explain why so many windshields cracked. Prominent theories include vandals, debris from the road, mass delusion, and even nuclear fallout. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. 
You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016... Adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. From the late 1940s to the early 50s, the world went through the largest paradigm shift in living memory. The World War II had vanquished fascism. It came at a cost. 75 million people, or about 3% of the global population, never returned from the battlefields. And the Holocaust had tragically demonstrated the potential of human cruelty. As the global community reckoned with loss, its entire perspective changed. In order to avoid a third earth-shattering conflict, 50 different countries collaborated to found the United Nations. But the planet didn't fully embrace world peace. Instead, the two remaining superpowers faced off against each other, launching the Cold War. The United States promoted itself as the forward-thinking land of freedom and individualism, while framing Soviet Russia as an oppressive communist regime. In this context, classic Americana was born. The nuclear family living under the threat of nuclear war. As Red Scare paranoia drove industrialization, a post-war boom swept through Seattle, Washington. Local airplane manufacturer Boeing employed a new influx of Japanese-Americans who'd recently been released from internment camps. The city's population grew by 20%. To accommodate its new residents, Seattle built new housing, freeways, and offices, bringing the city into the modern age. Meanwhile, the much smaller port city of Bellingham transformed into an economic center. 90 miles north of Seattle and 50 miles south of Vancouver, it was perfectly situated as a midway stop between the two. But all these changes heightened already present anxieties, so it didn't take long for Bellingham to become the epicenter of a bizarre mystery. In late March 1954, a few residents noticed small pits and cracks on some car windshields. The damage was minimal but distinct. Each mark was about the size of a dime. Since these dings were too small to come from conventional weapons, police suspected they were from buckshot or BBs. If a BB gun pellet had hit a regular plate of glass, like a window, it would break into a thousand tiny shards. But windshields are made of glass panes held together with a sheet of thin plastic called safety glass. Even though it's see-through, it won't shatter. At least, not easily. If someone shoots a BB gun or a slingshot at safety glass, it would only nick the pane, leaving tiny pockmarks 
like the ones Bellingham residents noticed. Since the damage was so minor, the police shrugged off the reports. They figured they were isolated incidents of petty vandalism. That is, until one officer reportedly noticed his own windshield sporting a pit. Then it became serious. An investigation was launched. Officials didn't have any hard evidence to help them identify a vandal, but they could make an educated guess who would commit such a crime. Their main suspect was the newest invention of the mid-50s, the rebellious American teenager. Of course, teenagers have always existed alongside adolescent angst. But for most of history, young adults had limited outlets to express their coming-of-age frustrations. Society historically put an immense amount of pressure on young adults to transition seamlessly from childhood to marriage or a job. But in the 1940s and 50s, young people felt a new sense of agency and freedom, thanks in large part to cars. The automotive industry had rapidly expanded, driving down price points. With less expensive vehicles on the market, American parents started allowing teens to drive, giving them the freedom to cruise the streets and stretch their wings. Suddenly, adolescents could go wherever they wanted, whenever they wanted, without adult supervision. Fueled by edgier music and movies, teenagers could meet up and run amok if they wanted to. We haven't been able to find statistics regarding gang activity in the 50s, but teenage ruffians appeared in several major movies and theatrical productions at the time, like 1955's Rebel Without a Cause and 1957's West Side Story. Each one depicted young adults experimenting with sex and violence. Rebel Without a Cause was even banned in three countries for its portrayals of juvenile delinquency. It only made sense that law enforcement would blame teenagers for the windshield scars, except they couldn't find any clues or evidence to support their suspicions. And while they scrambled to identify a specific vandal to charge, the culprits struck again. The next few attacks happened a week or so later, this time in the towns of Cedro Woolley and Mount Vernon, about 25 miles south of Bellingham. The damage was largely the same, blemishes on windshields. Nobody had seen or heard the crime occur. The pits had appeared, as if by magic. As local papers picked up the story, the public became increasingly worried. Officials suspected something seriously devious was happening beyond simple vandalism. A county sheriff told the press, This thing is far more than ordinary juvenile delinquency. It's a getting revenge on society. As far as we can tell, he didn't have any concrete proof to back up this claim. Perhaps he was nervous about how quickly the damage had moved on from Bellingham. After all, it was hard to believe a group of rowdy teens would drive 25 miles just to dent a few windshields, at least not without some larger motive. His suspicions were seemingly confirmed when the culprit struck again in Anacortes, a small town on Fidalgo Island, directly west of Cedro Woolley. On the morning of Tuesday, April 13th, reports flooded in. They all featured a variation on the same story. Their windshield had been damaged 
Nobody saw it happen, and most importantly, nobody knew why. Local police lost count of how many calls they received that day. Overwhelmed, they took drastic action to smoke out the culprits. Fidalgo Island only had two possible exits, Swinomish Bridge, which led east towards mainland Washington, and Deception Bridge Pass, which took drivers south to Whidbey Island. The officials called every available police officer, including state patrolmen. Dozens of cops set up roadblocks on Swinomish Bridge and Deception Bridge Pass, cutting off all traffic in and out of Fidalgo Island. The vandals couldn't leave without the patrolmen catching them. The police were looking for slingshots, BB guns, or other tools a potential vandal could have used to attack. But in spite of their efforts, they didn't find any suspect that matched. They seemed to have escaped before the checkpoints were set up because the vandalism kept spreading. The next rash of broken windshields didn't merely affect civilians. This time, it hit the military. Cracks and pits appeared on Whitby Island Naval Air Station in Oak Harbor, directly south of Deception Bridge Pass. Commander R.R. Hedrick responded with immediate force. He ordered 75 Marines to search the base. Not only would they stop any vehicle coming in or out, they'd look everywhere to find the person responsible. The Marines turned the base upside down and found several more cars with damaged windshields. But after rifling through the trunks, interrogating commuters, and reviewing surveillance cameras, they came up empty-handed. The Marines couldn't find a suspect or an object that could have smashed the glass. By the end of the day, more than 2,000 windshields had been damaged in some way. Weirder still, the phenomenon had spread at an unprecedented rate. The scope of the problem was much larger than anyone had initially suspected. No group of disgruntled teenagers could mobilize on this scale. They'd have to cover over 30 square miles, smashing thousands of windshields without being spotted by a single person. Doubt began to sink in as the local residents wondered what was causing the bizarre epidemic. But one fact was clear. The attacks were heading south, and it seemed like Seattle was the next target. Coming up, broken windshields sweep through Seattle. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now back to the story. In April 1954, Northern Washington State was gripped with panic. 
Over the course of two weeks, thousands of windshields developed pits and pockmarks, all about the size of a dime. News of the broken windshield epidemic appeared in Seattle's papers on the morning of April 14th. City residents pondered the unsettling implications over their morning coffee before going about their days as normal. For hours in a city of over 500,000 people, nobody reported any kind of windshield damage. It seemed the vandalism was confined to small towns, not to a metropolis like Seattle. But right around sunset, everything changed. The first call reached officials around 6 p.m. A woman reported three damaged cars in a parking lot in downtown Seattle. Another came in at 9 p.m. This time, the driver was in the residential neighborhood of Greenwood, five miles away. Neither had seen the damage happen. From there, the calls really started pouring in. Auto dealerships were hit, as well as police stations. Authorities were so overwhelmed, they had to hire new clerks for the night to answer all the incoming reports. Up to this point, most of the pittings had struck a town and moved on immediately afterward. But Seattle wasn't so lucky. Over the next several days, the attacks only intensified. Motorists even stopped on-duty policemen in the road to tell them about their dinged windshields. Officials didn't have time to compile full reports or notify the press. But finally, the day after the first pitting inside city limits, the Seattle Daily Times front page read, Mystery windshield damage spreads in Seattle and county. Locals were on edge. Workers on lunch breaks ran out to their parking spaces or garages to make sure their cars were safe. Sometimes they were. Other times, they weren't so lucky. Some motorists made outlandish claims that the marks appeared right in front of their eyes with no evident cause. One woman used a yellow crayon to circle every single pit in her windshield as it appeared. That way, if a new one spontaneously popped up, she'd know. Several car owners noticed strange debris on their hoods. It was fine, dark gray dust, roughly the consistency of gravel. Many theorized the powder had something to do with the pittings, but they couldn't identify the connection. At this point, most officials dismissed vandalism as a possible explanation. Seattle Police Chief H.J. Lawrence knew that no gang could have caused this much damage. He claimed it would take a small army, at least 200 people, and the group would need to be impossibly well-coordinated. Lawrence's proclamation confirmed what many already suspected. Nobody in charge had an inkling of what caused the phenomenon or how to stop it, and people wanted answers. The epidemic was spreading. Motorists in western Washington and as far south as Portland, Oregon, noticed damage to their cars. Auto dealerships covered up their parking lots, protecting their stocks so no one could strike overnight. Nobody knew who'd fall victim next, or if the plague would spread beyond the Pacific Northwest. Wisconsin reporters asked a weatherman whether the pittings could have been caused by something traveling through the atmosphere. Air travels fast and far, 
And if the culprit was airborne, it could have already made it to the Midwest. He said it was possible. And sure enough, in no time, over 1,000 motorists reported car damage in Canton, Ohio, and officials were no closer to finding an answer. Everyone had a theory, many of which were mutually exclusive. But few explanations could account for one odd detail in eyewitnesses' accounts. Some reported seeing something living hatch inside the pits. Glass is made of superheated sand, so many wondered if the grains hadn't been properly treated. Perhaps some kind of insect, like a sand flea, had laid eggs that survived the glass production process. And maybe when they hatched, the fleas escaped, leaving behind pockmarks. Luckily, you don't need to worry that insect eggs might be incubating in your windows. In order to make glass, Factories melt sand and other ingredients at temperatures up to 1,700 degrees Celsius. That's 3,092 degrees Fahrenheit. And it's hard to imagine any insect could survive in those conditions, which means this explanation didn't hold up to scrutiny. Without a clear theory to work with, the mayor of Seattle started running out of options. Desperate, he sent two telegrams, one to Washington Governor Arthur Langley, and the other to U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower. The message read, What appeared to be a localized outbreak of vandalism in damaged auto windshields and windows has now spread throughout the Puget Sound area. Chemical analysis of mysterious powder adhering to damaged windshields and windows indicates the material may simply be spread by wind and not a police matter at all. Urge appropriate federal and state agencies be instructed to cooperate with local authorities on emergency basis. Clearly, the mayor was as confused as everyone else. He called the cracks vandalism, then seemingly contradicted himself. Maybe he was trying to be open-minded. Nobody knew what was pitting the windshields, so he could have wanted to be careful not to influence the recipient's opinions by advocating one explanation over another. Regardless of his motive, he didn't persuade Eisenhower's administration to get involved, but the state government did agree to assist. Governor Langley's office contacted the University of Washington, requesting a team of scientists to investigate. They conducted a survey of 84 damaged cars, and the scientists' conclusions were underwhelming. They claimed the pits were simply normal wear and tear from driving. When cars kick up debris like gravel, the little pebbles travel fast enough to dent safety glass. However, the damage is minimal, almost imperceptible. You wouldn't even notice unless you were specifically looking for it. The University of Washington team noted that the pitting epidemic only affected front windshields, but never rear windows. This made sense since it's unlikely for debris on the road to strike the back of a car. The researchers were so confident about their explanation, one of them remarked, quote, Tommy Rot, there isn't anything I know of that could be causing any unusual breaks in windshields. These people must be dreaming. But the general public wasn't quite so confident. 
The findings seemed demeaning. Nobody wanted to believe the epidemic could be psychosomatic. Officials scoffed at the conclusion too, like the sheriff of King County. His department had examined over 15,000 cars, 3,000 of which featured some sort of damage. Surely 20% of cars in the county couldn't be dinged up in the exact same way by coincidence. To many, the university's explanation bore all the hallmarks of a cover-up. Coming up, the epidemic ends without answers. Now, back to the story. The week of April 14, 1954, an epidemic of broken windshields spread from northern Washington to Seattle. From there, it rapidly moved across the country. People reported damaged car glass as far east as Ohio, with no evident cause. Speculation ran wild. Some proposed cosmic rays or solar flares had somehow refracted, sending radiation through the atmosphere and fracturing windshields. Others thought dust storms or airborne chemicals were to blame. Still others believed it was all the work of extraterrestrials. A political cartoon from the time depicted a pair of alien children on the moon. They flicked pebbles at the Earth down toward Seattle. Although it was meant to be tongue-in-cheek, the explanation was as good as any. But the phenomenon spurred more than intellectual curiosity. If the people of Washington didn't know what was causing the pitting epidemic, they couldn't protect themselves against it. Luckily, nobody had to do anything to stop it. Over the course of a few days, the calls dwindled, then slowed to a halt. Again, there was no clear sense of why the reports were tapering off. But whatever the case, on Saturday, April 17th, almost three weeks since the first pits appeared in Bellingham, the Great Seattle Windshield Pitting Epidemic ended. Life went back to normal. Motorists had their windshields fixed and the dents never returned. Though both officials and civilians were relieved, the conclusion felt frustratingly anticlimactic. In the wake of the mystery, two scientists from the University of Washington continued investigating. Otto Larson gathered eyewitness testimonies, while Harley Bovey tested the countless hypotheses drawn from Larson's findings. Bovey gathered other kinds of glass for comparison. He examined the debris some witnesses had gathered off their cars and compared it to meteorites and other possible projectiles. He even sprayed safety glass with hydrofluoric acid and resin to see if he could replicate the pits. Resin is an ingredient found in safety glass's laminate. According to some General Electric workers, it would sometimes evaporate during the manufacturing process. The microscopic droplets congealed in the air and when they became heavy enough, they fell in massive globules. Bovey tried to replicate these conditions in his lab, creating several resin-induced dings. The problem was, they looked nothing like the pits from the Seattle epidemic. And since most of the eyewitness accounts were consistent about the divot's appearance, he had to write off this possibility. But 
he reasoned something else could have fallen on the windshields. Something from outer space. Perhaps a crashing meteorite could have rained down on Washington's parked cars. This wouldn't be the first time a meteorite struck a vehicle. In 1938, in Benel, Illinois, a man named Ed McCain entered his garage and found a hole in the top of his vehicle. Something had punched through the roof of his house, through the car, and into the seat. With the help of a neighbor, McCain found a rectangular rock inside the wreckage, about half the size of an average brick. It was unusually heavy, and it appeared to be partially melted. McCain decided his shed and car must have been struck by a rock from outer space. After McCain called the police to report the incident, several scientists dropped by his home to investigate. They confirmed his initial suspicions. His car really had been struck by a falling star. The so-called Benelled meteorite is still in a museum to this day. But McCain was just one driver. The pitting epidemic affected thousands of cars over the course of several weeks. If the dings came from meteorites, that meant the Pacific Northwest either suffered a massive, imperceptible meteor shower, or one large space rock split apart when it crashed down to our planet. This is actually fairly common. When space rocks hit the Earth's atmosphere, they generate friction which turns into heat and causes them to melt and break apart. Some meteorites disintegrate entirely, while others leave behind a trail of debris pointing to the impact site. This is known as the strewn field. To survive the descent, a meteorite would need to be unusually dense. Most that make it to Earth are made of iron, and they still partially melt as they fall. Bovey analyzed the debris from the pit marks on the cars, but it wasn't made of iron, nor was it dense enough to have made it through the atmosphere. Most likely, it was just ordinary roadside debris, bits of gravel, rocks, or pavement. Which meant Bovey couldn't attribute the dings and dents to meteorites or congealed resin. He crossed those possibilities off his list and continued his investigation. Finally, on June 10th, Bovey published his findings. He acknowledged that his tests didn't support any of the most popular explanations. In fact, he'd seemingly disproven all of them. But his analysis included one telling detail. There seemed to be a correlation between the damage on the windshield and the car's age. He argued that the older the vehicle, the more likely it was to have pit marks. Unfortunately, this still didn't point to a solution. The report was essentially the equivalent of Bovey shrugging his shoulders and moving on. Meanwhile, Otto Larsen conducted his own experiment. He recruited about 100 students from the University of Washington to call residents of the Seattle area, selecting names randomly from a phone book. During a six-hour period, the students interviewed 964 people. They asked where they first heard about the pitting epidemic and what they thought caused it. 
Almost all of the interviewees replied that they had read about the phenomenon in the Seattle Times or the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. This wasn't a surprise. They were Seattle's two most-read newspapers. But it indicated most people had heard about the pitting before they'd witnessed it themselves. After years of analysis, Larson and his partner published their findings in the 1958 issue of the journal American Sociological Review. Their conclusions supported the University of Washington's initial analysis. The Seattle windshield pitting epidemic was a collective delusion. When people read about the damage in the papers, they started looking at their windshields instead of through them. And for the first time, they noticed old marks, which they assumed were new. This explains why the pits primarily appeared in older vehicles. It also explains why no house windows, storefronts, or even rear car windows bore any damage. But the public still wasn't happy with the explanation. Nobody wanted to believe that they'd imagined the incident. Plus, there were a few aspects of the pitting epidemic that didn't fit Larson's theory. Notably, the broken windshields had struck numerous towns one at a time. There was no good reason for the people of Bellingham to panic, then for the delusion to move to Cedro Woolley and Mount Vernon and onto Fidalgo Island before finally reaching Seattle. Something had to be propelling the pockmarks and dings. As for what it was, nobody has an answer. But a few alarming possibilities have emerged in the decades since the epidemic, especially after the United States government declassified several reports on top-secret weapons tests off the Pacific coast. Perhaps the pits appeared while people of Washington state were unknowingly bombarded with nuclear radiation. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with part two of Seattle's broken windshield epidemic. For more information on the Seattle windshield incident, amongst the many sources we used, we found Seattle Met's feature, What Pitted Seattle's Glass, by James Ross Gardner, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Matthew Teamstra, with writing assistance by Angela Jorgensen and Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein, and research by Bradley Klein. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. 